Well, it was a dark, cloudy day, about three o'clock in the afternoon on a rocky and dry hill top outside of Jerusalem. There, Jesus is hanging on a cross between two criminals. He is bruised and beaten. His body is caked with dried blood and fresh blood is oozing out of his wounds, especially from the nails that have been driven through his hands and feet. The joints of his body are aching for he has been nailed to the rough wooden beams of a cross. A crown of jagged thorns is pressed firmly onto and into his brow. Blood is running down his face, his neck, his body, until finally it mingles with the blood that is coming out of his freshly scourged body and running down his legs and onto his nail-pierced feet and then onto the ground below. If you were to approach and listen carefully, you could hear the drip, drip, drip of blood. Like a lamb that is silent before it shears, Jesus has not opened his mouth for three hours. The last words that he spoke were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The crowd wondered if he was calling for Elijah, but Elijah never came. They gave him a drink of sour wine on a sponge lifted up to his lips on the end of a stick. And there, Jesus suffered his blood still drip, drip, drip on the ground. And through his bruised and beaten face, through his swollen eyes, he could see those around him. Some are are crying. Others are impatient to see him die. Some are just going about their business traveling on the road and they look up in disgust and disdain, wagging their heads. By this time, his blood is forming a thick pool on the ground beneath the cross. For the Roman soldiers... It was all in a day's work. They had done this many times. It was no big deal. But dark, angry clouds covered the sky, blotting out the sun, caused this very eerie and unusual darkness to fall on the land. And there is a moment of quiet, followed by a startling crowd Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. People look up to see that it was the man between the two criminals. The sign on the cross above this man says, Jesus, the Nazarene, King of the Jews. This was the man who claimed to be the Son of God. This was the man who claimed to be the long-awaited Messiah, the one who did miracles and healed all who were sick, the one who spake like, like no one had ever spoken before, the one that just a week previously was hailed as Hosanna in the highest, 
Now he is still, he is dead. His blood now slowing its cadence is still dripping on the ground. Drip, drip, drip. And the people look on in terror. Fear seizes them because they know in their heart that this was no criminal. And it seems that the weather begins to frown at his death. At this very time, back at the temple, hypocritical priests are going through their religious motions in the temple. And suddenly... There is a roar and the earth begins to shake. Instinctively, they look to their idol, the temple. And as they gaze into the holy place, they watch in amazement as that thick veil, which separated the holy of holies from the holy place, is instantaneously torn in two from top to bottom exposing the emptiness of the holy of holies where the ark is not present and has not been present for many many years people cry out in fear because they all know that earthquakes are from god and back at the hill outside of jerusalem called galgatha people are terrorized they're on the ground trying to hold their balances rocks split as dust rises up from the earth and as quickly as it came so it departs and everything is still a hardened roman centurion who has overseen the crucifixion of thousands picks himself up off the ground He can't take his eyes off of Jesus. He keeps looking at him. Knowing that the earthquake happened the moment he died. He exclaims, certainly this man was innocent. Truly, this was the son of God. The words of the centurion cut into the hearts of those present. They begin to beat their breasts knowing they have watched and participated in the death, the crucifixion of an innocent, righteous man. Weeping, the crowds begin to disperse, but certain Jewish leaders, seemingly unaffected by the words of Jesus, the dark foreboding clouds, Jesus' final words, or the earthquake, approach the Roman soldiers and say, can you speed up their death? We don't want these Bodies hanging up here and defiling the sacredness of our Sabbath. Jesus is there dead, but beside him are two criminals who, because they weren't scourged, because they weren't beaten like Jesus, are still alive. The centurion gives a nod and Roman soldiers approach the other two criminals with their large pikes draw back and you hear that sickening crack as they strike the legs of those men breaking their bones making it impossible for them to push up and breathe they gasp in pain and then shortly they suffocate and die another soldier approaches jesus looks up at him the crown of thorns still in his head 
He doesn't see Jesus breathing, but just to make sure, he takes a spear and shoves it into Jesus' chest cavity, pulls it out, water and blood pour out into the ground. The centurion, still stunned, gives permission for the bodies to be taken down. Jesus is dead. Then what happened? Ever thought about that? What happened after that? Well, some would say what happened after that is they took down his body. They cleaned it up. They wrapped it in cloths and spices and laid it in a tomb. No, now you're thinking like an evolutionist. What happened to Jesus, not Jesus's body? You know that at the moment we die, our spirit is separated from our body. What happened to Jesus's spirit from that Friday afternoon to that Sunday morning when it was united again with his body and rose from the dead? Well, this morning we're going to find out. If you have your Bible, turn to first Peter chapter three, verses 18 through 22. First Peter chapter three, verses 18 through 22. Now, if you are a student of the Bible, you may be thinking to yourself, you've got to be kidding. You are going to preach on this text. The Bible exposition commentary speaking on this text says, quote, this section contains some of the most difficult exegetical problems in the New Testament. D. Edmund Hebert writes in his commentary, quote, this paragraph is notoriously obscure and difficult to interpret, end quote. Now, why would I go to a text like this on a morning like this if it's so hard to understand? Maybe because I'm foolish, I don't know. But I've just discovered that some of the hardest texts in the Bible are the texts that often give us the greatest truths and encouragement if we're willing to just dig into them. They're often ignored. I'm sure you've never heard an Easter message on this passage. No one would be so foolish to do that. You know, you you only get one shot. I can't do a series on the passage. We're not going to be able to go through all the pros and cons of all the different views. I'm just going to tell you my view But there are some great things in here. This text is loaded with great truths. Everything's in here that we need for this morning, a morning like this. Now, first, just a little bit about first Peter. The theme is suffering. You can see this in chapter one, verses six and seven and chapter two, verse 21 and chapter three, verse 14, 16, 17, four, one. 4, 12 through 16, 4, 19, 5, 9 through 10. Over and over again, Peter's talking about suffering. His readers are suffering. He's writing to them so that they know how to suffer to the glory of God. They're being persecuted for their faith. They're under trial because they're Christians. And the main purpose of our text this morning is simply this. We need to make sure that we suffer for doing what is right, not for what is wrong, And that is the preceding context of our text this morning. And our text this morning is Exhibit A, Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example of someone who suffered unjustly. And though he suffered unjustly, triumphed and received great blessing and honor from God. 
And so if you have your Bibles, make sure it's open to first Peter chapter three and follow along as I read verses 18 through 22. This is what we read. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which few, that is eight, Persons were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. And it's all here and more. There's some fun stuff here. I wish we had time to go through the text and entire details, it'd probably take me about two hours. That's how big my sermon was before I had to chop it down. But the goal this morning is just to survey some of these major details. Specifically, I would like to point out four truths about Christ, which you need to believe. First, so that if you go through suffering for doing what is right, you will know why that is a good thing. Secondly, so that you can be delivered from the wrath to come. And third and finally, so that you will know what happened to Jesus between the cross and his ascension into heaven. In our first point, Christ is your only substitute. Look at verse 18. For Christ died for sins. Just stop there. Now, if you... Want to know how to suffer for doing what is right? Peter says, look to Jesus. The word also tells us Peter is making a comparison between his readers suffering. They were suffering, but so also did Jesus. He also died. The reason he died, the text says, is for sins. Your Bible might read, he suffered for sins. The meaning is the same. He either suffered unto death for sins, which means he died or he died for sins. The Jews at that time, remember, were still under the law of Moses. They continually offered up animal sacrifice day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. And those sacrifices were never able to make perfect those who drew near. That's why they had to keep offering them. They were only a symbol. They were only a shadow. They only prefigured the once for all sacrifice to come. And Jesus was the fulfillment of their expectations, though some of them did not acknowledge it. The text says, notice that he died once the word once describes a one time completely sufficient never to be repeated sacrifice peter adds for all to let us know the scope of jesus death he died once completely for all universally isaiah says the lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him paul says jesus gave himself a ransom For all, the author of Hebrews says he tasted death for everyone. John says he died for the sins of the world. First John 2, 2 says he himself is the propitiation for 
our sins and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the gospel message he preached to them. That is, when they were pagans, when they were without God in the world, and Paul came to Corinth that first time, when he came to preach to them, this is what he reminds them that he said. He said, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel or the good news, which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand by, which also you are saved. He's saying, remember the gospel, that good news I preached to you that you received, stood on and were saved. He says, for I delivered to you in verse three, as of first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That message is the message Paul preached. That is the good news. Christ died for our sins. And not only did Christ die for our sins, die once, die for all, he died. Look at the middle of verse 18. The just for the unjust. What does that mean? It means Jesus was innocent when he died on the cross for our sins. Are you a sinner? Then Christ died for you. That's good. Have you ever coveted anything? I mean, anything? You ever wanted something you didn't have? Well, that is the mother of all sins because it gives birth to idolatry, lusting, stealing, murder, lying, adultery, and the rest. Coveting. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you may encourage yourself because if you are a sinner, then you know Christ died for you. If you are unjust, Christ died for you. Now you may be sitting there thinking, well, you know, I just want you to know I may not be perfect, but I'm not as bad as some. And you know what? You probably aren't as bad as some. But that's the wrong question you should be answering. You shouldn't be answering the question, am I better than other people? The question you should be answering is, is I am holy as God. That is the question. Other people are not the standard. God is. And God is infinitely holy, infinitely separated from sin. He is perfect. Be encouraged and rejoice, O sinner. Christ, the just, died for you, the unjust. Now, there is a great doctrine taught here. And... We might call this doctrine the doctrine of the great switcheroo. (laughs) Now, if you're young and you're sitting out there, maybe in grade school, you might want to listen to this because you might have to explain this to your parents later in case they didn't get it. The big word that a theologians invented to try and, you know, confuse people is the doctrine of substitution. But switcheroo is pretty good. Because I think it explains in a little clearer way what actually took place. When a sinner, someone who is unjust before God, places their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, 
a great switcheroo takes place. Jesus takes all of their sin and guilt away from them. And in place of their sin and guilt, he gives them his perfect goodness, his perfect righteousness, his perfect holiness. The just for the unjust. Let's say you're in the hospital and you're, you're dying of cancer. You're just about gone. There you are in your bed. You're wasting away. And the doctor comes in. He's kind of excited and says, I found a cure for you. And you can hardly respond with any sort of excitement because you're so sick and miserable. And you say, how's that? And he brings this big elaborate contraption into the room and plugs it in and starts hooking things up to your body and starts hooking things up to his body and he starts flipping levers and pretty soon you begin to feel energy return your muscles that have wasted away begin to restore themselves the pain subsides your mind becomes clear and pretty soon you realize i'm cured And as you cry out, I'm cured. Just as those words leave your mouth, you notice something terrible has happened to the doctor. He is barely able to stand. He's moaning in pain. His body is wasting away. His eyes are sunken in his head. You say, what happened? And he said, I found a way to cure you. It was by taking your disease and giving you my health. That is what Jesus did. That is exactly what he did. By his stripes, we are healed. The chasing of our well-being fell on him. Jesus took the disease of our sin and the consequences of our sin, God's wrath upon himself. He suffered our death, took our blows from God. And in place of that, he gave us his perfect righteousness, his holiness, because we place our faith in him. Paul makes this abundantly clear in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And someday they'll find an ancient manuscript. They'll say in brackets, the great doctrine of switcheroo. (laughs) That's it. Jesus stands before us as the great physician of souls. He says to you, come to me. I will take your disease. I will take your sin. I will take your punishment upon myself. I will bear the brunt of it. And I will give you my perfect holiness and righteousness in substitution. I am the just. And I have died for the unjust. But why? Why would he do this? Why would a perfectly holy God become a man in the person of Jesus, live a perfect life, suffer and die for the unjust when he was just? Look at the middle of verse 18, so that he might bring us to God. Notice the text doesn't say that he died, that all would be brought to God, but that all might be brought to God. Surprisingly, many don't want the cure. 
Many don't want to believe in Jesus. They don't want to trust him as their savior. They don't want to turn from their sins. They love their sin. And even though they're infested with that sinful cancer, and even though that sin will put them to death, yet many of them pretend to be healthy. Well, I'm a pretty good person. Listen, you know, I'm no axe murderer. I'm no serial killer. You know, I'm not a terrorist. I'm a good person. Well, then Jesus didn't die for you because he only died for the unjust. If you're good, you're out of range of salvation because Jesus only died for the unjust. A perfect God will only accept perfect obedience. It's his nature to be perfect. His standards are perfect. He demands perfection. You go to a really expensive restaurant, you order a T-bone steak. And pretty soon the waiter comes out with his, you know, tuxedo and bow tie. And he's got, you know, the white cloth over his arm. He's holding the platter and there's a silver dome on it. And with some pomp and circumstance, he kind of slides up to your spot, sets it down in front of you and pulls off the lid and steam bellows forth and There's those little button mushrooms sautéed in garlic butter. Next to it, the bright green asparagus all lined up perfectly. A special sauce kind of dribbled over it. Next to that, this perfect little baked potato, perfectly broken open with butter, sour cream, and chives. (laughs) But then next to that is a bone in the shape of a T (laughs) that looks like it's been sitting in the sun in the desert for a year. Now, is that okay with you? You say, what? Where's my steak? I pay good money for this steak. I don't want a bone. Take this away. Get me my meat. That's not going to satisfy somebody who's looking for a steak to get a bone. Well, God isn't satisfied when you try to say, listen, I know your son died on the cross for my sins. I'm not accepting that. But how about my bone? How about my good works? You take the bone of my good works instead of your son. How's that? It's an insult to God. It angers him. He didn't send Jesus to die on the cross so you could give him the bone of your good works. He sent Jesus to die because it was the only way you could be saved. And if you don't receive him in faith, if you think you're going to get to heaven and God's going to go, well, you're not as bad as an axe murderer, so you can come in, you are so dead wrong. He is not going to accept that. The only thing God will accept is the juicy perfection of Christ's obedience. And that's all. It's either that or it's nothing. Now, in order to bring you to God, Jesus needed to 
Also, look towards the end of verse 18, to be put to death in the flesh. You know, we just got to stop here. This is Resurrection Sunday. Infidels through the ages have said, well, you know, what really happened, the reason they saw Jesus later on is Jesus really didn't die. (laughs) This theory has been propagated even to this day. Now, all I want you to do is use a tenth of your brain on this one. And think with me about this. The soldiers were mistaken when they allowed Jesus' body to be taken down from the cross, thinking he was dead, but he was not. And the disciples, as they were cleaning his body, as they were wrapping him in cloths and spices, never noticed that he was breathing. And the Jews who made sure that the tomb was sealed because there were rumors that Jesus was going to rise from the dead, they didn't notice that he was actually alive either. And they put that huge stone and sealed it with the seal of Rome. And then they got a whole bunch of Roman soldiers, a whole garrison there to guard the dead man. None of those people noticed that he was actually alive. He wasn't dead. He just fainted. He swooned. Then there was some special healing in the moist air of the tomb. Jesus woke up wrapped in his claws and clothes and spices. And he really wasn't dead. I mean, he was severely beaten, granted. He was scourged, no doubt, and crucified. And run through with the spear. But besides that, he woke up. And though his hands didn't work because they had spikes driven through his wrists, and though his feet couldn't work and he couldn't walk, he managed to get all those wrappings off of him. And as we heard earlier in the reading, he rolled up the cloth that was over him. You know, he wanted to be neat. Managed to move that huge stone away from the mouth of the tomb. And sneak by the Roman guards who on pain of death were charged to guard the tomb and no one saw him. Now, you tell me what the hoax is. That is the hoax. The truth is Jesus was put to death in the flesh and Peter makes that perfectly clear when he says having been put to death in the flesh, he died physically, but that's not all. Look at the end of verse 18, but he was made alive in the spirit. What does this mean? Well, what happens when you die? When you die, you continue to live on where in the spirit you can die physically, but you can't kill someone's spirit. We've seen this in Luke, haven't we? Where it says that don't fear those who kill the body, for after that, what else can they do? But fear him who's able to cast both body and soul into hell. That is, in other words, when they kill your body, they can't hurt your spirit. Spirits are eternal. Bodies are temporary. And upon physical death, your Body is separated from your spirit. So they put him to death physically, and then he became spiritually alive. And the question is, what happened then? Second point. Christ is your victorious king. Look at verse 19. 
After being made alive in the spirit, the text describes what Jesus did. Then people have asked me on many occasions. So after Jesus died, I mean, you know, that Friday afternoon, Saturday, Sunday morning, what was he doing? What was his spirit doing then? I mean, he wasn't in heaven. And and what happened? Well, here we are. Look at the text. It says in which also verse 19, he went Just stop there. After dying physically, Jesus, freed from his physical body, went somewhere in the spiritual realm. Where's that? The word went is the same word used in verse 22 where it says, having gone into heaven. It's translated gone there, went above. It describes travel from one place to another. He traveled somewhere, but where did he go? What did he do? The text tells us he went and made proclamation. The word proclamation is to proclaim or to preach or to declare something. So now we have Jesus in the spirit going somewhere to make a proclamation and utterance something. But where did he go? What message did he proclaim to and who did he proclaim it to? Look at the end of verse 19. The text tells us to the spirits now in prison. This is where it kind of gets scary. Hmm. Spirits in prison. Interesting. The word spirits is a reference to angels, specifically fallen angels or demons. You say, well, how do you know it's demons? Because holy angels aren't imprisoned. How do we know this? Well, not only because it says they're in prison, but secondly, because in the following context in verse 22, it says that Jesus um, subjected angels, authorities and powers. Those are different classes. Actually, angels is the kind and authorities and powers are ranks. And he subjected them to himself. Holy angels are already subjected to him. So we know he's talking about demons. Thirdly, we know the spirits in prison are demons because other cross references tell us they are demons. We know the words authorities and powers refer to different ranks of angels. We know that Christ and his death conquered them. Remember in Ephesians six, Paul says that, you know, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against You know, these principalities against the powers, against the world forces of darkness. He's speaking clearly of demons and angels. In Colossians 2.15, Paul speaking about what the death of Christ accomplished said when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. He, He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He disarmed by his death on the cross. He took away their armament. Now, what is their armament? Sin. And its consequence, death. That's what he took away from them. Oh, the demons and Satan wanted nothing more than for Jesus to just commit one sin. If they could get him to commit one little sin, just a little white lie, just a little unrighteous anger. If they could get him to do one little tiny thing, he would no longer be a perfect sacrifice. He would no longer be able to die for the sins of the world, to atone for the sins of the world. He would no longer satisfy the perfectly righteous standard of a holy God. And they would have won. But Jesus was perfect when he died. And so he disarmed them. But the only weapon they had was sin and death. 
Look at the beginning of verse 20. Where we learn more about these spirits who are in prison. They're just those spirits, everybody knows about them, who are disobedient. You know, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. You know, when he was building the ark. You know, the ark that eight people got into and escaped from the judgment of God. I mean, everybody knows that. And you're sitting there going, no, no, I don't know that. I wish we had time to go into this in detail, but we don't. The good thing is I have preached on this before and you can call the office and say, what was that question and answer sermon where Pastor Jack talked about the angels in the days of Noah? Let me just give you a very short truncated abbreviation. This may sound a little fantastic to you. Um, you want a more detailed treatment, call the office. In Genesis 6, verses 1 through 5, it talks about The sons of God. The sons of God is a specific um, phrase that is always used in reference to angels. The sons of God cohabitated with the daughters of men, bore children, and those children became mighty. They were called the Nephilim. It was because of that wickedness that those demons committed by cohabitating with women that God sent the flood upon the earth. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, it also speaks of God judging disobedient angels who sinned in the days of Noah. 2 Peter 2, 4 through 6. Write it down. You can look it up later. And casting them into a maximum security prison, which most English translations translate hell. The Greek word is Tartarus. A term borrowed from the mythological place of the dead used in Greek mythology, but a real place, that place... Where demons right now, those demons who are especially wicked, who are disobedient. I mean, if you think about it, demons are already disobedient, right? These were specifically disobedient in the days of Noah, right before the flood. And God has cast them into Tartarus, this pit of darkness reserved for the judgment of the great day. And he compares the sin of these demons to something that happened in Sodom. And you're thinking, well, what's that? Well, Jude, verses 6 and 7, tells us a little bit more. Jude also speaks of these especially wicked demons being imprisoned, and he gives four reasons. One, they did not keep their own domain, the spirit realm. Two, they left their proper abode, the spirit realm. Three, they indulged in gross immorality. Angels indulging in gross immorality. Four, their gross immorality was going after strange flesh. The Greek is literally flesh of a different kind than theirs. The women. And this is what happened, wasn't it, when the angels went down to Sodom and Gomorrah to rescue Lot and the men of the city came out and said, we want to have relations with the angels. And Jude says, in the same way as these. That's what happened. That's how they got into prison. That is the background of how they got there. If you want to know the details, call the office. So the spirits in prison are demons. They're incarcerated for cohabitating with women in the days of Noah. This is who Jesus went to address. But why? Why did he do this? I mean, he dies. He's got, you know, all day Saturday, a little bit of Friday, a little bit of Sunday. Why is he going to go there? 
Well, when he died, people knew about it. The people in Jerusalem knew that he died on the cross. And the holy angels knew that he died for sins. And not only that, Jesus uh, would tell the saints as he was resurrected into heaven and took all of them with him to be there. And so the question is, what group would not have known that Jesus triumphed over sin? Demons in prison. So he goes there and gives them the sanctified ninner ninner speech. That's what I call it. I mean, that's what he does. He goes down there to those demons who were especially wicked in the days of Noah, who did everything they could to try to keep people from becoming redeemed. And he goes to them and he proclaims his victory, his triumph over them on the cross. Now you may be sitting there thinking to yourself, but Jack, what does this have to do with me? Well, I am so glad you asked. This brings us to our third point. Christ is your ark of refuge. Peter has just told us about Noah. Now, let's remember what happened in Noah's time because of what the sons of God, the demons did cohabitating with the daughters of men. The Nephilim arose. They were wicked men. God then was going to bring a flood upon the earth. He told Noah to build an ark, which took him some 120 years to build. That's a long time. I mean, you could imagine somebody building, you know, the Queen Mary here in Burbank. They could afford the property and the lumber. And for 120 years, he's building and building, and people keep coming to him, Noah, what are you doing? Building an ark. There's a flood of judgment coming. You better repent, and when I'm done, you better enter in. If you want to be delivered from the judgment of God to come. And what happens? Noah believes, his family believes, they entered into the ark, and they are rescued from the judgment of God. The author of Hebrews in the great chapter of faith in Hebrews 11 verse 7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. In other words, it was Noah's faith in God's promise that caused him both to build the ark, get inside of it, and that's why he was delivered. Look at verse 21. Peter says, corresponding to that, Noah's faith in the promise of God, which led him to get into the ark and survive the deluge. Baptism now saves you. Oh, that verse was just not there. It has caused more grief for more people when plucked out of context. People go, see, it says right there, baptism now saves you. Sure, it says that if you want to just pluck it out of its context. What about corresponding to that? What about the following phrase that says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh? We're not talking about water baptism here. Baptism just means to be placed into, to immerse into, submerse into. Noah placed his faith in God and got into that ark, and that ark went through the judgment of God and survived because he believed God. 
And if you're sitting there thinking, well, if it's not water baptism, then what is it? Well, he says right there, but look at verse 21 towards the middle there, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, what does that mean? Okay. Corresponding to Noah getting the ark baptism, not water baptism saves you. Let's just change that word. Being immersed into saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Hmm. What is he saying? He's saying, place your faith in Jesus. That's what he's been talking about, right? Jesus' death, the just for the unjust, substitution, died for all. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's illustrating. But you may be thinking to yourself, well, wait a second here. But how do we know Peter didn't kind of believe in salvation by grace plus the works of baptism? Well, if you look back and you look at first Peter chapter one, verse three, look there and notice what Peter says. He says that God in his great mercy caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead not baptism. Look at verse nine of chapter one, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, not baptism. Look at one twenty-three. for you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God, not baptism. Look at the end of chapter two, verse six. He who believes in him will not be disappointed, not baptism. Look at the beginning of verse seven. This precious value then is for you who believe, not baptism. What does Peter believe? Peter believes that you are saved by placing your faith, by believing in Jesus. When the word of God is preached to you and also by believing in his resurrection. Ah, look at our text back at 321 at the end through the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, he says it again. Are you sure? Well, of course, that's what he says. You want to be saved? Be like Noah. Place your faith into Christ. Submerse yourself into faith into Christ. Trust Christ completely. And that will save you. We're not talking about water baptism. We're talking about you appealing to God for a good conscience. The only way you can appeal to God for a good conscience is to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Who... Guaranteed our salvation through his resurrection. And here we are in resurrection morning and imagine that verse is there. Why are we preaching this text? That's the same thing Peter says in chapter one, verse three. Caused us to be born again through a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the same thing that Paul talks about in Romans chapter four, verses 24 and 25. When he talks about Christ's righteous being credited to us, to those who believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and who was delivered over because of our transgressions and who was raised for our justification. Paul says in Romans 10, 8 and 9 scriptures that are well known to many of you, the word is near you in your mouth, in your heart, that is the word of faith, which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, what? 
God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, why would this be especially important to Peter's readers? Well, it'd be especially important for this one thing. They're being persecuted for their faith, right? He says, if you're being persecuted for your faith, I don't even if they kill you. You're going to still live. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, we'll know that he's going to raise us from the dead. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is addressing those people who deny the resurrection. He sums up in a few verses the folly of rejecting the resurrection. And in verses 16 through 19 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For if the dead are not raised, even Christ has not been raised. Then if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have also died and fallen asleep in Christ have perished and if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. There it is. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you're still in your sins. You are a pitiable, foolish person because you've believed that Christ raised from the dead when he in fact did not, if the dead are not raised. Paul's whole argument is, is of course, Jesus was raised is verified and he gives tons of reasons how we know it's true. Fourth point. Christ is the resurrection Lord. Look at verse 22. Jesus, the resurrected Lord is the one who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. The right hand of God is the highest place of authority In the spiritual and material realm, Jesus became king of kings is basically what it means. Jesus is in his throne. He's not a baby in a manger. He's not walking around on earth, letting men pick on him anymore and persecute him or nail him to a tree. And this is what it comes down to. Jesus is Lord. Are you going to submit to him or not? Are you going to let him have control of your life or not? Are you going to let him tell you what to watch on TV or not? What to say? What to look at at the inter- on the internet? What to read? What to do in your life? Are you going to let him have control or not? That's what it all comes down to. The scriptures say he will return when we least expect it like a thief in the night. And today is a day of salvation because we never know when he's going to come back. It could be right now. It could be before we walk out of here today. And when he comes back, it's too late. You were here this morning, which probably means you profess to be a Christian. We probably all know the facts of the gospel. If you weren't sleeping in the last little bit, you do know the facts of the gospel. So we know all the facts of the gospel. You say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I know who Jesus is. I know he lived a perfect life, born of a virgin, died, rose again on the third day. I mean, I'm a Christian. You know, the demons believe that same thing. They believe all those facts, but they hate Jesus. See, there is an intellectual kind of belief that doesn't save you. It's like the people in Noah's day. Do you believe there's an ark over there? Well, look at it. It's huge. Do you believe Noah thinks there's a flood coming? Of course, I've heard him say it for 120 years. Well, they believed the facts, but they didn't do what? Get in. 
And there's many people who come to church who believe the facts, but they don't get in. They don't place their faith in Christ. Why? They love their sin. Or maybe they're ashamed. You know, Satan's whispering in their ear, man, listen, you cannot tell people you just became a Christian. If you do that, they're going to know you've been deceiving them, that you've been lying to them, that you've been a hypocrite. I mean, they're going to know you were pretending. Now, so? I mean, I've never heard of anybody being persecuted because they came to Christ in the church. People in the church going, oh, man, I'm staying away from you because now you're saved. (laughs) Don't listen to him. Believe in Jesus. Or maybe it's just your wicked heart and you're thinking, you know, I don't want to give up my sin. I don't want to give up my immoral relationship. I don't want to give up my pornography. I don't want to give up my wicked business practices. I just don't want God telling me what to do. Ironically, if you don't want God to tell you what to do, Satan is telling you what to do. You are right now held captive by him to do his will. It's either Satan is master or Jesus is master. Satan is master will lead you to hell. Jesus is master. Will cause all your sin to be taken away. You have perfect forgiveness, receive all of his righteousness. And when you die, you will live forever with Christ. What will it be? Christ is your only substitute. Christ is the victorious king. Christ is your only ark of refuge. And Christ is Lord. Do you remember what Paul told the Greeks at Athens? God is commanding all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because there's coming a day when he will judge the living and the dead through a man. He has appointed heir, having furnished proof by what? Raising him from the dead. As you leave here today, I hope nobody leaves here without getting right with Jesus. Make an appeal to God for a good conscience. Get into the ark of Christ by faith and God will save you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy to us as demonstrated in Christ, his life, his death, his burial his resurrection, his ascension. And Father, we know that right now he stands before us holding out his arms saying, come to me all you who are weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your kindness towards us. May none of us leave here without having entered by faith into the ark of refuge, Jesus Christ receiving his salvation that we might be saved from the judgment to come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.